You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. It's a pleasure to introduce Professor Paula Castaneda-Dower, who is uh, a newly hired assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural and Applied Economics here at UW-Madison. And uh, so part of the project money was helpful in uh, making this uh, hire possible. And we're, we're very grateful uh, at Creek, and we're very grateful both to the Carnegie Corporation of New York and also to the Department of Agricultural and Applied Economics for uh, putting this all together. So Paul is a development economist, and his research looks at a wide range of topics, including the effects of land reform on individual and household level behavior. His lecture today has a very intriguing title, and I'm very much looking forward to finding out what this title refers to, but it's called simply The Value of a Statistical Life in a Dictatorship. So please welcome our new colleague, Paul Dower. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, it's great to be uh, part of the Krika community and to increase the presence of economists in it. And so I thought it'd be fitting to uh, present something that probably, you know, only a strange enough social scientist such as an economist would uh, come would uh, present or would come up with the, this idea to look at uh, this uh, and this topic in such a way. Uh, and by what I mean by that is that. Uh, so we're looking at the value of statistical life in dictatorship, but we're going to be kind of abstract and sterile, uh, treat uh, the, the events uh, during the reign of, of Stalin, uh, known as the Great Terror, in a, in a fairly abstract and sterile way. And so this is kind of the economist's uh, take on, on, on this, but uh, we're going to do this in order to uh, shed light on an important uh, issue that every any complex society is going to face, and that's that at some point we need to make decisions about uh, a, a trade-off between, say, economic gain or, or monetary gain and uh, loss of, of human life. And uh, in the early days, economists, uh, like every other social scientist, kind of struggle with this uh, topic because it's kind of a, a moral quagmire when you start to think about assigning a a monetary value to, to human life. And two economists, Jacques Drez, a, a French economist, and, and uh, Thomas Schelling, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, kind of put this, changed this debate, uh, changed this understanding of this trade-off, uh, shifted this in, in an important direction. And what they did was they changed the way, uh, they changed thinking about this trade-off in terms of loss of human life to uh, risk, fatality risk. And so this seems like a subtle distinction, but it's very important. And in the context of policymaking, it it is very uh, it matters quite a lot because uh, if you take an individual and ask them to value, say, uh, a small change in their fatality risk, this is a much different problem than asking an individual value what price would you put on your life. And so Schelling, as as economist, was you know held the held to the principle of consumer sovereignty, and so he very much wanted to make, uh, when society engaged in making these valuations for this trade-off, 
they wanted this to be attached to consumers or citizens, right? And what would a citizen do in this situation? And you don't want to ask a citizen, okay, how much do you value your life? I mean, this doesn't make, this leads you down a difficult path. But we can ask citizens, or we can ask an individual, how much would you value a small change in your fatality risk? And people do this all the time. If you run, say, late to a meeting, you know, you can decide to, you know, in your driving, you can decide to increase the speed at which you're driving and not be late. But you increase the fatality risk of you or possibly your fellow citizens by doing that. And so you, all the time you engage in these small, these trade-offs of small fatality risk. And so we can ask individuals to do this. Okay, so that's one important thing. And as an aside for this audience, what's interesting is that Thomas Schelling got this insight from a problem that was developed that Rand Corporation faced in the Cold War. And that was how best to bomb the Soviet Union. And there was a problem. They came up with their optimal solution. This is in an interesting piece by Bonsoff, by the way, in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. They came up with an interesting solution and involved a lot of casualties of airport, what is it, jet pilots. And the Air Force came back and said, no, we don't like your solution. You didn't put enough value on these jet pilots. And so anyway, this debate raged on for 20 years. And Thomas Schelling had this insight that really what we care about as policymakers is not the valuation of a particular life, but how we value fatality risk. And so just to give you, and now today, this value of statistical life is used everywhere in cost-benefit analysis, especially in tort cases and approval of medical procedures and so on. So we use this concept all the time. Policymakers use it all the time. But let me just give you, for those of you who are still struggling to understand what it means, let me just give a little more details on this example. So if we just put this in Thomas Schelling's perspective, we have, say, N citizens. So let's say we have a million citizens, and they're engaged in some socially beneficial activity, but it has a fatality risk of P. So this is a probability. This is maybe 10%, maybe 5%, maybe much smaller. And we can ask, okay, if we take a reduction of P by 1 divided by N, so say 1 millionth, this is going to yield, if we aggregate over across the whole group of the population, this is going to yield 1 life saved in expectation. So here's the key point, that this is a statistical life. In aggregate, we save 1 life, but each person is faced with a small change in their fatality risk. And so from the policymakers, from the individual's perspective, we're only asking them to evaluate what would they be, say, willing to pay for this small reduction, but then we can aggregate across all those individuals and come up with the equivalent of a statistical life. And so that's what we mean. The total amount that citizens would pay for the reduction of 1 statistical life, and we're talking about policies, we're talking about a huge, large population, then we can speak in terms of life saved. But if we're talking about the individual, it doesn't make sense to talk in terms of life saved. So we're not saying that the value of statistical life is not a value of individual life. 
the value aggregated across the population. Okay, so now where does the dictatorship come in? Well, when you know Schelling and, and Dres and others were developing this, they were developing this idea in the context of democracy. And actually, there's an old methodological debate that I've learned about very recently uh, in cost-benefit analysis that um, in the 60s that where they were very concerned about whether we should how we should treat the valuation the policymakers' valuation of these trade-offs and whether we should include them and, and mostly they were concerned about you know special interests interfering with uh, implementing the you know the optimal optimal solution in terms of uh, what consumers would want um, and so this issue of uh, indirect democracy was might give you the inefficient policy outcome. But we're going to take a different take on that, and that's that you know we're still going to hold to this idea that you know the, the political institutions they're going to affect how policymakers' valuation, uh, how how we treat policymakers' valuation in this in its trade-off, both from say a, uh, definitely from a positive sense, but also maybe even from a normative one. But I'm not going to talk about uh, normative issues here. Uh, but from a positive sense, especially in a dictatorship. The preferences of the dictator are going to really matter in terms of what policies get implemented, obviously. And so here, uh, even though the value of statistical life methodology in economics has been developed exclusively looking at uh, citizens' willingness to pay for, for risk reduction, in a dictatorship, we're, also, we're going to care about what is uh, the dictator's preferences over uh, the reduction of fatality risk for, for citizens. And so uh, that's one point. And then the other point is that in a dictatorship, you know, if we, or if in any type of political institution, we can evaluate it in terms of the types of risks that citizens face and the level of risk that citizens face. And so uh, it's important. This is just uh, so we think that, especially this type of risk that I'm going to talk about today, like in the Great Terror, you know, it's it's hard to imagine this. Uh, happening in, in a democracy, but I mean, it certainly could, but it's much less likely to happen in democracy. So if we're thinking about, uh, the, you know, comparing political institutions, uh, one way to, to do, one uh, way to do this is looking at uh, these types of risks that citizens face, and we, we give them, um, what we're going to do is give a, a way to kind of quantify how much these, uh, the types of risks diverge from what citizens would, would prefer. Okay, so uh, so as I said before, this you know sometimes in a dictatorship you know you you're going to face risks that you know citizens uh, that the the preferences of the the dictator are going to conflict with citizens, and and the Great Terror is, uh, is an example of that. So and I'm talking about the many of you probably are aware of the Great Terror and its it's the, the first wave of terror where you had these open trials that, uh, of, of the elite. But there's a second wave of terror, um, and, and um, probably you're aware of these uh, mass operations where a number of Soviet citizens were ex arrested or executed. And uh, I'm, uh, but there are also, uh, as a component of this uh, second wave of terror, there was national campaigns and campaigns against uh, ethnic minorities. 
And uh, these mass operations were based on the principle that, you know, um, the information about this, when you have uh, your citizen, the, the whole idea behind the Great Terror was that you had these uh, citizens that could be potentially enemies to the state. And so when you have, it's very hard to get information about these citizens. So it's, it's costly to get information about them. And essentially, Stalin and, uh, and, and his top committee members were willing to take, uh, uh, willing to treat these executions or arrests as, as statistical in nature. That basically, if they kill a group of people, if, uh, if some of them are enemies, then that's enough for them to justify them killing a group of, of people, no matter if they're innocent or not, or, or, or guilty or not. And so the thing about the, ethnic, the national campaigns is that um, unlike other mass operations like against the, the kulaks or, or, um, or, or other, uh, uh, or, well, mainly against the kulaks, the ethnic minorities were basically a very well-defined target group. So we can think of this in terms of uh, a, a group facing a probability, uh, a risk, a fatality risk. And so, um, and why was, why was, why were these, um, ethnic minorities targeted well. Uh, the, Stalin was very concerned about the the uh, Spanish Civil War and and the Fifth Column. The, the idea that some uh, uh, group with ties to the to the enemy, the external enemy, would become an internal threat. And so uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the German and Pole operations, uh, where you have Germany and Poland as, as potential external enemies uh, uh, and, and creating this link between uh, citi Soviet citizens of German and Polish origin that could become a threat to the, the regime. So in terms of how we're thinking about the trade-off, we have if Stalin increases this group of citizens' fatality risk, he's going to increase the, the survival of his regime, uh, but he's going to lose economic output. Okay. So it's very crude. Very simple, uh, but uh, you're gonna. Hopefully, you'll see that we we, we learned something from this. Uh, by the way, I should mention that there is a huge debate in uh, Soviet Russian uh, history and economic history on whether Stalin's policy of Great Terror was uh, strategic, mainly whether Stalin was rational when he was deciding about this policy. We're gonna assume that he's rational, but hopefully, our results. Uh, well, uh, the fact that our results have sense and are, um, you know, this somewhat confirms that, you know, this is not a bad way of thinking about how Stalin was, what Stalin was doing. But again, again we are assuming that Stalin is, is, is strategic in a sense. So what we do is we're going uh, to write down a model that, that gives us Stalin's uh, preferences uh, up to an unknown parameter. Uh, this parameter is going to basically be how much Stalin weights economic output versus the survival of, re of his regime. And uh, then uh, we're going to estimate this parameter structurally, uh, and we're going to play on the fact that there's a lot of regional variation in the German and uh, Polish population in the empire, both in terms of levels and, and shares. And uh, so this is going to give us, uh, we're going to have you know, a, uh, a, a rule that Stalin should 
we, we believe Stalin uses. And this regional variation is going to give us a way to estimate these, this parameter. And uh, just uh, uh, I'll go through more of the details later. But once we have this estimate, we can basically determine how uh, Stalin values the, the statistical life of a cis. OK, so just to preview the results and, uh, and touch uh, just a little bit on the, our contribution. So we get very precise estimates, actually, of uh, what uh, Stalin's, uh, what we're calling the VSLD, the value statistical life of the by the dictator. Uh, it's roughly $43,000 in US uh, $1990. Uh, you can look at, you, you know, just for sake of comparison, and I'll talk much more in detail about this, we have time later. Uh, the conservative estimate given by uh, Ashenfelter, I think, in Greenstone, uh, is one half million for the for the U.S. Of course, this is a contemporary estimate. Uh, Bob Allen loves to use India as a as a comparison for for Russia or Soviet Union, and uh, and there's some estimates from there that are about 150,000. Uh, just to keep keep this in in mind, uh, and so you know we're gonna we're gonna our contribution basically is that. You know, we we're, we kind of bring some of these VSLs methods full circle in that we bring in this valuation of the policymaker. Uh, we give a uh, uh, this. We we could argue that this metric that we use the, the VSLD can be used to to compare uh, uh, institutions and and how they affect uh, economic development. And then of course we contribute to this historical debate on Stalin to the extent that you believe that our story. Uh, supports this idea of Stalin being rational. OK, so let me get to some of the data. So <coughs> we have, uh, here's uh, the political victims under Stalin from during his reign. Um, we have the blue line in arrests and the red line in executions. And the Great Terror is this period where you have both a spike in arrests and executions. And uh, so you know, why, why do we see this big spike here? And, and the, really, the argument here is the, this, the fifth column, that, that Stalin was worried about invasions of Germany and Poland. And he's worried about how the, the threat to uh, uh, the threat uh, of linking this external threat to the internal uh, groups that, that had ties, strong ties to the German and, and Poles or, or Japanese. It, these uh, national campaigns happened to uh, obviously, other minorities. Uh, uh, we can talk about that in a little bit. And so we're going to argue that you know, so basically, the reason why we see this huge jump is, and the, why, why can we explain this policy of terror? Well, there's kind of two uh, objectives. Stalin cared about economic development. There's lots of evidence that he did. Uh, there's a nice quote that uh, he has. Uh, we have to close the development gap with Western industrial nations within a decade. Either we do that, or we will be crushed. So he, he, he really saw economic development as an important objective. So he valued material wealth. There's the whole story about accumulation and, and, and the such. Um, but he also wanted to minimize this threat of the fifth column. And so here, if you eliminate uh, these, in, these citizen enemies, then uh, you uh, reduce this threat, and you increase the, the, the likelihood that the regime is going to survive. 
And uh, Molotov uh, explicitly articulated this view in interviews uh, later on. Um, but there is some evidence that this is, you know, this is how they were uh, thinking already at the at the time. And uh, this, we're going to, for this results I present today, we're going to focus on these border regions alone uh, because these are ones that should have the strongest link. Uh, okay, so there's kind of two things I need to convince you uh, uh, that one that uh, you know Stalin was aware that if he killed too many people, he would reduce economic output too much, and two that if he killed some people, that he would uh, increase this uh, his grip on the regime and that, that the regime would survive. Um, but also, I need to convince you that this terror policy of terror, at least for these uh, national campaigns, was statistical in, in nature. And in this mass, mass operations basically received no press in, in uh, no, no, no attention in the Soviet press. So uh, very unlike these open trials that, that probably you're more familiar with in the Great Terror. And uh, and these 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 were also you know, targeting regular citizens, not, not anyone that was uh, elite in any way. Um, and they were, they were started and stopped and approved at each step of the way by direct, direct decrees by Stalin. Um, and, uh, and so he was perfect, he knew the, the, the level of uh, terror and he, and he wanted uh, regional differentiation and he wanted to target these particular social groups by issuing decrees for each eth uh, eth ethnic group. Um, and there's lots of evidence that the authorities basically, they, they didn't care whether there was poor identification of these citizens. So uh, just to give, you, to give you a few quotes, so <coughs> Stalin said, each party member, each Soviet citizen has a signal about all the potential shortcomings she observes. If at least five percent of this information is correct, that will be good. So he doesn't. He, he has this understanding that you know it's okay if they uh, target people who are who are innocent, as long as at so, some point, uh, it, it, as long as they target some people that are. And, and then Yezhov, uh, who is uh, the Ministry of Secret Police, if you chop wood, chips will fly. So there's collateral damage to to, to getting things done. Okay, so uh, so these the, basically ethnicity was seen as a proxy for uh, disloyalty, and because they're ethnic, because they're they're defined by the, the ethnic group, the the target group was very well defined. Now that's not to say that individuals that were killed or or arrested under these uh, decrees were ethnic Germans or ethnic Poles. Some of them were not, and and uh, and uh, ethnic German. And ethnic Poles also were, were uh, uh, killed, or not exclusively killed or arrested under these decrees. So there, there are some errors there. Uh, and but what's interesting, from also from the statistical point of view, uh, in terms of fatality risk, these the accused citizens they had no voice in this matter. So there's no scope for appeal. They weren't even present for when they were uh, uh, judged. Uh, or the, the sentence was hand down, it was all done very secretly. So one day, someone disappears and, and no one knows why. Um, 
So, uh, and another thing is that ethnic operations have extremely high execution rates. So you saw this, if we go back to this figure, uh, you know, the, in, in normal times, let's say, the, the execution rate in um, Stalin's regime over the whole period is about 15%. So if you're arrested, you're executed with 15% rate. So what were your source of data for this? I, mean, I understand there's some controversy over a lot of these numbers, right? So, so these, are, these are from, this is archival material. So, um, so all, if, they were, if they were killed or arrested by this decree, we have that information. Okay, but so it's but there could be unregistered uh, events, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> but it's likely to undercount the number. It of could undercount executions. it. Yeah, it could undercount it. Um, but but uh, we don't have any indication that says that this is you know systematically different across the regions at, at this moment. But uh, there's some things we can look into to try to look at that. But that's a good. Point. So, but then if you look at Great Terror, the execution rate it, 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 for the period of the Great Terror for all these operations was about 40%. Um, so if you're arrested, you're executed with 40% rate, at a 40% rate. But for Germans and Poles, it was over three quarters. So nearly twice that of the Great Great Terror. So this is really, it's just a, it's a death sentence. and. And the, you know, if you weren't executed, you were sent to Gulag, and the, the mortality rate in the Gulag was, was pretty high. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later, because that affects our estimates. <clears throat> okay, so these two campaigns, uh, Polish, well, the Polish campaign was the largest, um, but uh, the German campaign was also pretty large, and, and this is the only, we, these are the only two national campaigns that we have uh, information, um, the regional distribution of these uh, victims. So, but you know, these are very sizable. So, uh, so 111,000 Poles were executed, and and total population size of the empire is 627,000. So, this is very high uh, amount, very high level, and that that also maybe presents some difficulties with our analysis. But I'll talk about. I can talk about that later too. So just to confirm that that you know Stalin was directly involved. So in the red circle you have Stalin's signature. On the left-hand panel you have uh, lists from uh, this is uh, Moscow, uh, this is Georgia Republic, Krasnodar Krai. These are all lists that you, uh, that uh, contained the names of people who were arrested and and uh, and should be executed. Uh, and then on uh, the right hand side this is a decree that is saying that we should we should uh, extend the uh, this great terror this is in the early 19 uh, April of 1938 and they're going to extend the great terror for a little bit longer so Stalin was very uh, paid close attention to this um, well one thing uh, that that I should mention that I didn't and if we have time I'll show the estimates so in the beginning of the for the national campaigns, there was there were no regional quotas like in uh, the Kulaks uh, mass operations. Uh, so there was no like principal agent problem there. Some people have talked about these principal agent problems with respect to quotas. It wasn't present for the mass operations. 
Um, they really, it was really controlled at the top the level of the, this. Now, there was a change in the policy. So in the beginning, basically the lower down officials gathered photos of individuals. They created these albums and then the albums were sent to the center. In, in 1938, they, they abandoned this procedure and set up regional, a way for regional, uh, the regional authorities to approve these lists without necessarily having to go directly to the center. And so we have data on who is executed or, or arrested by the album, what we call album procedure. And, um, and we can, because th this should more closely reflect uh, Stalin's preferences than later when they switch they switch to the the other the more simplified procedure. Uh, before you move on, uh, with regard to the data, so what you're saying for the Polish and German campaigns, you have specific regional level data from the NKVDs and say Stavropol reporting to the center and saying we arrested these people, and then subsequently we executed these people. For yeah. Example. Mm -hmm. So okay, so you have that uh, across regions for those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, in the interest, of, let's see. So, in the interest of time, uh, I'm just uh, for if you want details. This is basically how we're thinking about the problem, where uh, we have some weight that, that Stalin placed on output. At oh, there's a typo there that should be an exponent s to the one minus alpha. But anyway, we have some weight that Stalin cares about output, and and some weight that cares about survival. And the key thing is here. The, the, the fraction of, of uh, potential enemies in the population, this M over N, N is a population is a population size in the region, M is the population of the minority, this negatively affects stability. So when we introduce terror, we reduce this, uh, we, we reduce this number, so we increase survival stability, but we also decrease output. So there's this trade-off when we introduce terror. Uh, and uh, the this is uh, basically some this is an optimal level of terror in our simple model. I can go over the details, uh, uh, but basically the comparative statistics are, you know, if you care more about economic output, then you're going to have less terror victims in, in the statistical sense. And uh, if you uh, if the strength of the external threat is higher, then you're going to have more terror terror victims. Okay, so yeah, this so basically all the data is archival. The Memorial Foundation is the, the uh, actually they were collected it um, and take it and, and put it online, uh, so you can go get this data if you want. Um, and uh, we also use the census population census data. I can talk about there's some issues here with the 1939 census. Um, uh, I mean, with the 1937 census, so we prefer to use 1939 census, but this is obviously after the Great Terror, so it's not so great for us. But we do some correction, and uh, uh, we can use either, and it doesn't change the results too much. Okay, so we're going to use uh, the method of moments to, to uh, basically we're take that first order condition. Uh, this is the what the optimal terror should be, and an expectation. Uh, we should we should have uh, the, the first order condition should hold, and this is going to give us uh, what we can uh, what we need to uh, to evaluate or to estimate this parameter. And there's uh, some other details here that I have to skip for now. But the interesting thing is that although we do this structurally, we actually have a nice reduced form 
representation that we can compare to. So we can basically run this uh, by reduced form. We just run some linear regression. I have each of our, we have our population, uh, our, our, our uh, exogenous variables, like the population si size and the size of the minority uh, group. And, and we get estimates and then we can, we can create, uh, we can back out what the structural estimates would be and we don't have to assume any structure at that point. And so we get very similar estimates when we do this reduced form approach or the structural approach. So it's something nice. Okay, so, <clears throat> so the weight on economic output is estimated to be uh, 0.6, uh, 0.061. So this, and it's statistically different than zero. So we have very fairly tight confidence intervals. Um, uh, I mean, very precise <laughs> confidence intervals. And uh, this is, comes from, you know, this is basically the baby, our baby version of our estimation, because we, we calibrate the external threat. Basically, this theta equals 0 0.065 means that Stalin would lose uh, at least one region with probability 2.5%. And, and this means Stalin would lose at least one region with 5% probability. So, uh, and so, but these estimates are still pretty low. So Stalin's placing much, a lot of weight on his, uh, on the survival of the regime and not much weight on economic output. Still, uh, uh, so how do we go from there to, uh, to attain the dictator's uh, 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 value of statistical life? Well, um, Basically, uh, in our model gives the rate, the, mar the marginal rate of substitution between output, economic output, and survival, survival of the regime. And so then we have, at the optimum, we can draw a, di a difference curve that, that tells us, uh, that holds utility constant at, uh, and equivalent to the optimum. And then what we can do is ask the counterfactual Okay, if Stalin was at his baseline, uh, the baseline risk to his regime. So in other words, no one suffered from great, you know, there's no, there's no fatality risk to citizens. How much would we have to compensate Stalin to uh, keep the risk there at zero? To, to keep the risk, at, the fatality risk at zero. Okay, and so that's what we're gonna do. Then we have to convert to the proper units um, because we're, Stalin's operating in different units. And when we do that, we get this valuation here that uh, uh, if we look, look at you know this 2.5% probability that one region will be lost, this gives us an estimate of $43,180, and it's very precisely estimated. Okay. And so what does this mean? This means that if uh, if the citizens uh, got together, they'd have to, uh, and they wanted Stalin to to uh, reduce the, their their risk, their fatality risk. They'd have to pay him this much for each uh, for each life that was saved. And this is the maximum amount that he would he would he would require them to pay. Okay. And so when you look at this figure, it's startling because uh, this amount. If we, we compare to, say, democracies, this exact amount 
uh, is much less than uh, what citizens are saying they'd be willing to pay for a, a risk reduction. So we have this extreme, so not only do we have you know, this not very nice policy of terror, but if the citizens were able to communicate to Stalin, he himself would agree to reduce this terror risk because they would be willing to pay, you know, if they could afford to pay him, they would be willing to pay him much more than what he would accept for re reducing the risk. And so this has an has a interesting, uh, I mean, it's a very much of a stretch, but, you know, the, first this suggests that, you know, Stalin could be influenced by uh, economic means, particularly you could think of uh, dictators being influenced by economic sanctions. And this kind of tool could be used to analyze, you know, how much the sanctions are going to have to be to influence the, the, the dictator. Um, uh, so, so we do some more careful calculations. Um, maybe you don't, maybe uh, 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 you don't like uh, the U.S. today. Maybe 1.5 million sounds too much. But if you look at U.S. in 1940, there's some estimates, and they're just under a million. And if you do this calculation, obviously the U.S. had a higher uh, uh, GDP per capita in even in 1940. Uh, this this gives you a range about 150 to 200,000. And we can look at other developing countries, but they all are above this 50,000. And so we can think of this. You can think of this in kind of two ways. One, this represents what citizens would be willing to, to pay. And since we think people are alike all over the world, this would be what Soviet citizens would be willing to pay. Or you can think of it as, well, this is what we'd be willing to pay in a democracy, and maybe not in a dictatorship. And so the kind of the next step of the project would be to try to get citizens' willingness to pay and see if it, in the Soviet Union, and see if it matched up with Stalin's uh, willingness to accept. Okay, so if I have, do I have one more minute or so? Uh, uh, so there's potential bias here. And a reason why I want to touch on it is that it can change this, so the story a bit. So if you ignore the gulag, which we have, the, this BSLD is biased upwards. Why is that? Because when Stalin, uh, we treated basically each person that was uh, arrested as, as someone that was executed, not, not someone that went to the uh, gulag. And the gulag, you still can get economic output. So you're not actually getting, you're not actually losing as much as you, as you would be, as we were attributing. So Stalin actually, uh, but we can, we can deal with that by introducing a subsidy, uh, basically account for this production of the arrestees. And we do that, it doesn't really change the estimate that much. So Stalin comes a little bit closer to uh, what we'd expect under, say, a democracy, uh, under democracy, this value would be non-positive. Uh, if alpha, if it's alpha approaches one, this value would be non-positive. Or go to zero, but we can't claim it's zero because it's at the border, so it's just non-positive. So most people, most citizens, uh, or most uh, democratic leaders probably would give a negative valuation to the tariff, right? Reducing the tariff, right? So, uh, so what's interesting is that you know there are transaction costs uh, to this terror, and we didn't account for those. We basically it was free to, to kill or arrest people. Um, if we take the whole budget for the Great Terror, this comes from Allen. This would result to a per victim tax of 34%. We put that in our model, and we get 
uh, the, the estimate increases to about 60,000. So still in the realm of reasonable, like if you imagine some Kosian bargaining, citizens would still want, would still win out until the dictator don't implement criteria. Uh, but what's here, what's interesting is if we, there's, Stalin himself was worried about the production externality caused by terror, and Davies estimates that Great Terror caused about a 2% reduction in GDP, uh, just for Great Terror. And if we did that, this would be equivalent to about 1,257% uh, for victim tax, <laughs> so pretty large. And this actually increases the, the VSL estimate quite to a quite a large degree. So if you believe that this production externality could be solely attributed to these national campaigns, so uh, that's a, a strong assumption, then, you know, there's no bargaining, basically no bargaining with Stalin on the Great Terror, that citizens would not value their statistical life high enough to tell them to stop. Okay, so, uh, so I'll end with that, I guess. Uh, some conclusions, well, I, we believe that this framework could be developed to kind of Look at, look at the debate between autocracies and democracies in a, in a new way, and we can come up with basically metrics and ask, okay, and we believe this methodology can be applied to democracies, obviously. Uh, we can look at policymakers' valuation, and if policymakers are, have incongruent preferences to citizens, then the, the, these numbers are gonna diverge, and then we can kind of get a metric of how democratic or how much the principle of consumer sovereignty reigns in the policies. 